and to learn from it together. This is the central act in the worship life of the church. It has been for 2,000 years. We worship, we pray, we give, and then God speaks to us through his word. And, uh, and for the sake of recording, I'm going to reread the passage. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Ephesians chapter 6, 10 to 20. And there the Apostle Paul says, let's, let's stand in a posture of receiving the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, Words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now we have been walking through the book of Ephesians this summer and, uh, and today we've just come to what I think is one of the best known and I would say one of the least understood passages in this book, the Armor of God passage. Now, why do I say least understood? In 1655, the Puritan pastor William Gurnall published his exposition of these verses, and it runs to three volumes, 261 chapters, over 1,400 pages. And he titled his book, the Christian in Complete Armor. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great preacher of the 20th century, managed to do it in only two volumes, but uh, he called one of them the Christian Soldier. Now, do you notice something about the word Christian in both of these titles? It's singular. Devotional writings remind us, encourage us to pray on our armor every day. We are told that each one of us has an enemy, the devil, whose desire is to tempt each of us so that we fall into sin, and that you and I need to be armed against him in order to withstand that personal temptation. Now, it is, of course, true that Satan and his crew are your enemies and my enemies. The Bible makes it clear that Satan prowls around seeking whom he may devour, and we are told that we need to resist the devil. Well, absolutely. But that is not what Paul has in mind as he writes Ephesians chapter 6. He's not saying to you, Christian, make sure you have your own armor on 
so that Satan cannot attack you as you walk through your day. This is not a personal letter to you and to me. And when we approach it as a personal letter to you and to me, we misunderstood. So what does Paul have in mind then? How are we to understand this text? Well, to answer that, we need to be reminded of the place of this passage in the whole of Ephesians. To read Ephesians chapter 6 without understanding the shape of the book is like reading the final chapter of a mystery novel. It doesn't make sense. And Ephesians has six chapters, and each part belongs to the whole. And Paul wrote these 11 verses in chapter 6 after writing everything that goes before it. He didn't start with this passage, and there's a reason for that. So, let's consider Ephesians so far. This is something of a review near the end of the sermon series. Um, like hearing the story before getting to the final chapter. Now, Ephesians, we have said, is all about one thing. In Christ, God has reconciled us to a new relationship with himself and to one another. And all of Ephesians is about this. Okay, we can see this when we walk through the book. So we'll do that quickly, and, uh, and you can see where we have been this summer. If you have your Bibles, it might be helpful to track, to follow along. So Ephesians begins after its initial greeting with these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the first section of the book is a litany of what these blessings are that are ours in Christ. Our chosenness, our call to be holy and blameless, our adoption as children of God, redemption, forgiveness, and eternal inheritance, the Holy Spirit, these are all blessings that God has given to us in Christ. And throughout this first passage, there's a real relational emphasis. God's love for us, that we've been adopted as his children, that we are forgiven in Christ, who is himself God's beloved son. And an emphasis, too, that this is not something that we did, but that God did it. God has acted in Christ to make us his children. And you might remember that when we began this series, I drew your attention to chapter 1, verse 10, that God's eternal purpose was to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. And I said then that it was the idea of uniting that was the key that was being particularly emphasized there, the main thrust of Ephesians, that God's plan is to bring things together in Christ. He brings together to himself people who are separated from him. He brings together people who are separated from each other. In verses 11 to 14 of chapter 1, Paul celebrates the fact that we, that is Jews, and you also, that is the Ephesians, Gentiles, heard the word of truth, the gospel, and responded to it. We're saved, we're given the Holy Spirit as a deposit. And then Paul, in the last part of chapter 1, prays that the Ephesians, and us, I think, will have an ever-increasing understanding and experience of everything that is inherent in our salvation. That the Ephesians and us would know God better, would grasp how great our inheritance in Christ really is, would experience and rely on the power of God that is at work in them. And this power, says Paul, is the very same power that God exercised not only when he raised Christ from the dead, 
But when he exalted him and seated him as, as, at his own right hand and gave him the name above every name, just made him ruler over all things in the past and the present and the future, uh, over every name and kingdom and realm that exists or has existed or will exist and has made him to be the head over the church. And as head to the body, Jesus leads the church, but there's also an organic unity the head and the body belong to one another. He is one with the church, and we are one with him. And chapter 2 begins by reminding us that we were once spiritually dead, walking in sin, captive to the prince of this world, who is Satan, that our family DNA was disobedience, and because of that, we were by nature children of wrath. But God, in love and kindness and mercy, made us alive in Christ. And now, instead of walking in sin, we are created for good works, which we are to walk in. So this whole first section of Ephesians, right up to chapter 2 and verse 10, is about God acting in Christ to reconcile us to himself. The second section, 2 verse 11 to 3 verse 19, is about God's reconciling us to each other. And Paul reminds them that as Gentiles, like we are, at one time, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he has made us, Jew and Gentile, he has made us both one. And now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Two groups, worlds apart. Jews were God's people. Gentiles were not. Jews despised Gentiles. The Gentiles did not have the law of God, did not have the covenant of God. But God in Christ broke down the dividing wall of hostility and made in himself one new man out of the two. Two peoples now united as one people, one body, one temple, one household in which God lives. And Paul in chapter 3 kind of gushes over the fact that God has called him, the ultimate Jew, to be an agent of this reconciliation, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then Paul makes in chapter 3 what I think is the theme statement of all of Ephesians, verses 10 and 11. He says this, that God's intent was that now through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places according to his eternal purpose, which he realized in Christ Jesus. In other words, through the church, through God's work of taking separated peoples, divided by a wall of hostility, and uniting them to himself and to each other in Christ, this work of reconciliation, this is the way in which God is glorified in the spiritual realm. The great work of God is to restore relationships. And at the end of the day, and I said this two and a half months ago, at the end of the day, God will take his church, a fundamentally united people from every tribe and tongue and nation, every age and gender, every social class and IQ level, from both sides of the tracks, millions of people bound together by their shared experience of being made children of God in Christ. Struggling marriages made whole, estranged parents and children reconciled, former enemies now forgiven brothers and sisters, and God will hold up this church and say to the spiritual world, here is the expression of my perfect wisdom. 
This is what my power at work can do. This is what my love accomplishes. And even the devil and his accomplices will bow and acknowledge the perfection of God when he presents them with his church. That is what Ephesians is all about. That God will glorify himself by making a church, a body of people in a Christ-rooted relationship with himself and with each other. And that's why chapter 3 ends with Paul's prayer that the Ephesians and us would be united with the saints in our understanding and experience of the love of God in Christ. Because our shared experience of God's love in Christ, overflowing in our love for each other, is the centerpiece of God's great work in history. That's why God created it all. It's God's eternal purpose. It's God's magnum opus, the church in Christ. And so the doxology at the end of chapter 3, he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Yeah, that's Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And that's what we've been talking about for ages this summer. It's doctrine. It's truth. Interestingly, we haven't been told to do anything yet in these chapters. There's only one imperative in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And that's in chapter 2, verse 11. And we're just called to remember what we were before God acted. That's, that's the one command in those three chapters. Remember. You were separated, but now you've been brought near. But of course, lest we think that all we need to do is sit back while God just gives us love for each other, uh, Paul's letter doesn't end there. Now he says, now, in light of all this, how do we put this into practice? And there are more than 30 commands in the next three chapters. Chapter 4 begins, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He says, therefore, because of this reality, because you are a receiver of God's grace and a member of the one people of God, now walk that reality out. Live it. And how do we walk? Paul right away says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace. How do we do that? That's what the rest of the book is about. Verses 4 to 16 of chapter 4. Under the Lordship of Christ... We exercise the diversity of our gifts so that the whole body might grow in effectiveness and maturity. To chapter 5, verse 20, walking in purity, in love for each other, and in particular, speaking appropriately to each other, truthfully, encouragingly, in love at all times. Chapter 5, 21 to 6, verse 9, husbands and wives, fathers and children, workers and bosses, all of us mutually submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of this is what it looks like when people are in relationship with Christ and with each other in Christ. It's just basic Christianity. And every instruction has to do with the community of faith. Every instruction in Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6 has to do with the community of faith. Even the commands given to individuals have to do with how we are to live in community with each other. Speak the truth in love. Walk in love. Forgive each other. Thieves need to get jobs so that they can support other people who are in need. Husbands to wives. Children to parents. Every instruction in Ephesians has to do with what it means to live together as God's people. Everyone. 
Then we come to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. And you have to ask, does Paul now suddenly change gears and address us as individuals, each one of us? Oh, by the way, John, Mary, Ken, Satan has it in for you personally, so you need to watch out for him every day. Make sure you put on your armor every day so that you don't fall victim to him. Is that what Paul is suddenly doing? I don't think so. Paul has the community of faith in view here, just as he has for the last two and a half chapters. He is not addressing the Christian. He is addressing the church when he says, Finally, people of God, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Church, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The Ephesians and the Calgarians need to be strong in the Lord armed and ready against the attacks of Satan and the other evil forces at work in the world. Now, why do we need to be armed and ready? What is Satan up to? Trying to tempt each of us personally? Satan's agenda, Satan's great agenda, is to undo the work of God. He hates God. doesn't hate us, by the way. He hates God and gets at God through us. I don't think Satan cares about us, frankly. But if God is into reconciliation, then Satan is into estrangement. If God is into bringing together, Satan is into tearing apart. What did Satan say to Eve in the garden? Did God really say that? You can't trust God when he says something. His plans are for himself, not for you. And so he bred distrust into their relationship with God. What happened when Adam and Eve then did sin? They hid from God. Conflict between them was introduced. And then one of their sons killed the other. And sin just took off from there. Satan is about violence, discord, gossip, contempt, abuse, criticism, jealousy, isolationism. Anything that separates That is what Satan is committed to. And if the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, if the oneness of the people of God in Christ is to be preserved, then God's people had better be aware of and standing against the schemes of the devil. And so I think the church in complete armor is a better title than the Christian in complete armor. The Christian army is better than the Christian soldier. And this armor of God passage is a warning and a call for the church to go to battle, to fight for her unity, to defend herself, to defend ourselves against the things that threaten to divide us. Because when there are things that seem to threaten unity in a church, when we begin to feel fragmented or disunited, the problem is not the other guy. The problem is not the program. The problem is not the style. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And there's the phrase, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, chapter 3, verse 10, to whom God will glorify himself through the church. 
And these forces are real, and they are arrayed against God. They are seeking to destroy what God is doing. And Satan would have us think that our problems are with each other. And that's nonsense. Our issues will be spiritual battles. And God has given to the church his armor and his strength to allow us to guard the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And only from this perspective do we understand Ephesians chapter 6 and what it says to us. And what does it say? It says several things to us. Thornhill Baptist Church. First, it says there is an enemy, a whole evil force whose mission is to undermine our unity. And when there are things that threaten to distance us from each other or when conflict is brewing, the problem is not with each other. Again, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, the spiritual forces of evil. And these forces will, one day, they will bow and acknowledge the perfect wisdom of God as manifested in the church. But in the meantime, they are militant against the church. They will one day bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but now they are still in rebellion. And their field of operations is the church. Guess what? I remember a few years ago predicting to someone that we as a church could expect to face some issue or conflict in the imminent future. Because, and this is why I think this, because when a church starts thinking with renewed energy and urgency about seeking first the kingdom of God, which we are, by the way, you can expect Satan's thugs to try to trip us up. They might try to slow us down for a while. They might try to distract us. But eventually, you can bet that they will revert to their tried and true tactics of breeding conflict and disunity. And I said to this person at the time, and this person is here, and I wonder if you remember this conversation. I said several years back, I said, when that time comes and we see something brewing, we'll be tempted to think that it's about the issue, but it won't be. And the conflict won't really be about the people involved in the conflict. Behind it, there will be spiritual forces. And if we recognize that, we will be okay. There is an enemy, and a bad one. And he does not go, in his own words, to and fro in the earth, walking up and down in it. That's how he put it himself. No, the truth is he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And as Paul says elsewhere, we are not unaware of the devil's schemes. And being aware, recognizing what the struggle really is, we can stand firm, making every effort to guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, continually speaking the truth in love, not letting any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building up, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is all the language of Ephesians. That's what this text says to us. Text also says that we do not rely in any way on our own strength. Do you know why? We don't have any. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And whose armor is it? Put on the whole armor of God. His armor that he gives to us and says, here, put this on. 
The first three chapters of Ephesians reminded us repeatedly that in all things spiritual, we had no resources. We were children of wrath. We were dead in sin. We were alienated from God, from his people, from the covenant. And if we have any connection with God at all, it's because he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world and he adopted us as his children. He forgave our sins. He reconciled us to himself. He incorporated us into his own people. And we're reminded several times that his power is at work in us and for us. And only by his power can we even begin to think about living rightly or standing against the devil. And only in God's armor are we able to withstand him. What is the armor? What is it that God has given to us that protects us against these spiritual attacks? It's all that God has done for us in Christ. It's the realities of our being reconciled to God and to each other. So it's, it's our faith through which, by grace, we have been saved. It's our salvation. It's the truth, all the things that have been talked about in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. It's the gospel of peace. It's the righteousness of Jesus that's been applied to us. And it's as we know and consciously walk in these things together that we are armed. For against such things, Satan has no weapon. His fiery darts sputter and go out. Okay, this, this is God's armor. This is what God has done. This is what God has given to us. That's what the text says to us. Third, though, the text also says that we need to put it on. God has done it all, but we are not without responsibility. We put it on. And we don't put on the armor by praying on our armor every day. We put God's armor on by walking out Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6. Loving each other, speaking well, forgiving, submitting to each other. Everything we've spent the last six weeks talking about. That's what the text says to us. That's how we put on the armor of God. And fourth and finally, it also says that we arm ourselves not only defensively, but offensively. We have not only armor, but we have weapons as well. And there are two. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. And this was going to be the last sermon in Ephesians, but it's not. In two weeks, going to talk about the sword and prayer, because I think we need to do that in some detail and practice it. So in two weeks, we're going to address those things. But let me say this morning that the twin practices of Scripture and prayer are not just important, but they are vital. Not just to the individual, but to the church. The church that is rooted in and surrendered to the Scripture and the church that prays is a church that stands and that withstands. In the meeting on Thursday past that I told you about, we were reminded of the kids' song, read your Bible, pray every day, and you will grow, grow, grow. And that is true, but it's not only true for my growth as an individual and for my health spiritually, but it is true for that of the church together, collective. If your life and mine is to be all about Jesus, then scripture and prayer will have primacy. And if we as a whole church are going to be increasingly enamored by Jesus, our friend and our king, then it will be scripture and prayer that have primacy here. And this is not a call to obligation any more than saying that we need to be obligated to breathe or to eat and drink, to live. Breathing and eating and drinking aren't chores. They're just 
natural and essential to life, and such are prayer and scripture to the life of the church. And we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. So until then, what do we take with us today? We take this. Look around. See who the people are in the sanctuary around you. Who are they? They are not just people who attend the same church as you do. Not just a collection of individuals. We are a body. We are people who have been united to one another by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus according to the eternal purpose of God for his glory. That's who we are. We are a part of God's declaration to the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms that God is perfect, that he is wise, that he is great. When eternity's opening ceremonies take place, we together are the ones who walk into the stadium carrying God's flag, wearing God's colors, us. The people sitting around you, the church. So here's what we do. Do not be unaware of the devil's schemes. When you sense conflict, when you hear gossip, when the truth is spoken without love, notice it. Know that Satan has taken a shot and think, no, this is not who we are. We are one with God. We are one with each other. We are not children of wrath. We are children of God. Once we were darkness, but now we are light, and we will walk as children of light. And let each of us say this morning, as for me, I will love. I will forgive. I will submit. I will serve. And finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you together may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Let's pray. Oh God, we're so thankful for your armor. If left to our own devices, we would be overrun and crushed by the slightest attempt of the evil one against us. but you have armed us in Christ against whom the devil cannot stand. And I'm just so glad to be reminded of that. And I pray for us that you would, that you would help us to stand, help us to guard our unity, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You will bind us together as a body in love for each other. We pray that you will give us a heightened level of discernment, awareness of what Satan is up to, that we'd recognize what he does when he does it. That you would root us in your scripture and teach us to pray. And, O oh God, as we sang at the beginning of the service, we affirm now that our desire is that you would be glorified in our lives, in our church, in our world, even in the heavenly places. And that because of your church and because of this church, you would be honored and people would know that God is wise and loving, powerful and good. Oh Lord, in the name of Jesus, make Ephesians reality for us. And now as we gather around your table, let it be an expression and reminder of the fact that you've brought us to yourself 
and made us a part of a body together through Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. We do gather around the